You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have part two of Sankar from Afghan Eye, where we learn about the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan to minimize the newly found concern for the plight of women in Afghanistan. So the Sandinistas took five months to eliminate illiteracy. Um, They took over in 1979. Five months later, they had just like conquered it. So what is the literacy rate? Like in the best guess, what is the literacy rate in Afghanistan around now after 20 years of U.S. occupation? I think it's uh, in World Bank report that 84% of women are illiterate. So 84% of women cannot read. Um, and yes. then And in rural areas, for the men, it's pretty bad too, right? Yes, yes. So, so y- you will have men who can read a little bit and there are more men who can read than women. But after 20 years and trillions of dollars uh, invested, uh, the literacy rate in Afghanistan is still shockingly high. And this is mainly because, uh, you know, even like in Somalia, the, uh, you know, the Marxist leader, Siad Barre, he managed to get 75% of the country literate within a very short span of time. So, you know, uh, there is a concept called as high modernist. Okay. So high modernist leaders like Lenin, Siad Barre, or some of the Marxist leaders in Afghanistan, they felt that they should use the power of the state to transform society. And in some cases, that was disastrous. It resulted in massacres. But in some cases, they were very effective, like how Siad Barre managed to uh, make most of Somalis literate. But he also killed uh, uh, over 100,000 of the Isaq tribe which is one of the reasons why Somalia is still in turmoil. But that's not the, the, the point. What, what I'm trying to say is if the United States really wanted to help Afghanistan, Afghan women, to promote literacy, they had all the resources. They had all the means to do that. Like I said, in Nicaragua, the Sandinistas with, had very few resources and they took five months. So now, have you heard about the scandal of the ghost schools and the ghost students? Yes, uh, Azmat Khan wrote that story. Uh, okay. Yeah, she she's uh, she's great, by the way. She she's a very good journalist uh, scholar, uh, and and it's true that uh, yes, they have built many schools in Afghanistan, but uh, most of those schools are either not used as schools or they only exist on paper. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of uh, Logar. Logar is a province just south of Kabul, the province, uh, the capital. Okay, L- Logar is a very conservative province where most people in Prov- Logar are ethnic Pashtuns, and ethnic Pashtuns, even the the very progressive ones, even the Marxists amongst them, they would not like any strange man to go anywhere near their women folk. Okay. I don't blame them after everything that's happened. <laughs> yeah, so so that's that's a cultural thing. They they're very uh conservative and they they feel like, you know, wow, well, women folk strange men shouldn't come anywhere near our house. So, 
in Logar, they have said we are going to build girls' schools in many districts. But I know for a fact that in Logar, where they have actually built a girls' school, that girls' school is basically a building which Mm -hmm. is used as a military outpost, and it has never, ever, ever been used to teach boys or girls. It was Mm. only used as a military outpost for the uh, Afghan uh, National Army. And every time those buildings were being attacked by the Taliban, then the media would report the Taliban have attacked a girls' school in Logar. So, so it's very convenient. But in other parts of the country, like uh, I know someone who was very uh, closely related to my family. He worked for uh, USID. And one of these uh, contractors at the USID, he offered him a deal. He said, listen, we have this project where we can develop this uh, small building uh, which provides certain uh, services including teaching uh, children, we will get this much money, but you have to cooperate with me to sign all the paperwork and appear in all the right meetings so Mm -hmm. that the money is allocated. And then we will divide the money between us and then you get half, I get half. And and, and... Wait, who spends the money on the schools then? (laughs) So, So this contractor gets the money from USID uh-huh. And he knows that my relative works for that uh, uh, company that that does the actual work of building and reconstructing. So he said that since you are a known person and they trust you and they know that you uh, are a reliable contractor, I will go along with you as the white man who uh, is also part of this. <laughs> project and two of us together we will convince him to uh, allocate the money to us so that we can do this and then we will just split the money and uh, my relative he said uh, but how about actually building that uh, project and he said oh don't be so naive you don't you know that tomorrow taliban will blow it up anyway so this uh, relative of mine said you know what this feels really dirty i'm not going to do that and uh, the next month month he was fired oh wow so, <laughs> So that's so that's how it works, you know. It, it's 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 a very dirty game where they use women's educations, girls' schools, and everything, clinics for women in areas where there is no health facility for women. They say we have to build a clinic so that local women from this community don't have to travel all the way to Kabul uh, if they have any issues uh, because there are no gynecologists, anything here, so we have to build this clinic. So everyone agrees, everyone is on board, even the Local Taliban, they also have wives and daughters and mothers. They say, yes, clinic, very good, please build it. But then when 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 the actual project needs to be implemented, uh, then a, a project that could last six months to actually implement, it takes three years. The money that needs to spend to build that, in some cases, it would be sixty-five dollars to uh, $70,000 max. And then you have a very fancy facility. But they would say, no, this is going to cost $300,000. And then they say, we went over budget because we were attacked. And what kind <laughs> of attack? Like, like, this is an example of someone 
Uh, you see, I translated for uh, Afghan refugees for uh, almost 11 years, okay? Afghans who would escape from Afghanistan, come to the Netherlands, the UK, try to apply for asylum, and they had uh, difficulty with the language and everything. So uh, I would help as a professional, but I also did a lot of volunteering. And in some cases, these people, they would come with these stories to convince the government to give them an asylum. And I would say, uh, if I were you, I wouldn't say that. And they would say, why not? And I would say, if you say that, you will get in trouble because that's a crime here. An example is a man, he said uh, he was working for as a security guard for a uh, NGO. And while they were sort of a local armed militia, uh, they would occasionally get attacked by the Taliban, etc. So they would also actually serve as a fighting force against Taliban. Uh, and in one instance, he says that uh, the local uh, community leader, who was also a uh, local uh, district governor, said that this new building, we have received this much money to build this building. But if you guys come at night and you just destroy it, shoot a few ro rockets at this building, <laughs> we will get more money, double money, uh, and then we will build it again. Yeah. So, and he said that uh, when I try to uh, go at night and uh, and and shoot, uh, there were uh, there were uh, foreign troops there crossing, and they saw the firing, and they thought that we are Taliban, and the Taliban know that we are not Taliban. So now the Americans and the Taliban are after me because I shot rockets at that building. So basically, his life is in danger, and he wanted to apply for asylum here in Europe. And I told him, you know, uh, I, I believe that it's a very tragic story that you had to go and destroy a school building that was built only day before. Uh, and now your life is in danger. But if you tell the story, they will decline your application for asylum. But but those stories, there are actual people who, who have actually done those things. They would get paid to go and destroy something that was built maybe a day before, a week before. Uh, and then in the news report, you read uh, Taliban have destroyed a clinic for uh, women or the Taliban have destroyed this. And in some cases, the Taliban actually did those things. OK, they actually did destroy uh, girls school. They actually did destroy clinics. They actually did kill doctors. They actually did kill teachers. Those are all facts. But in every lie, there needs to be some portion of truth well there's a hint of truth no something about like th there's a ghost of a truth um yes okay, so this is from a 2010 u.s congressional report it says security for the u.s troops is principally provided by warlords the next part i want to lead up to is the answer is obvious as to why the army just collapsed within our days because you're not going to fight for your warlord. Um, but was there like, how was the national army organized as in, was it really a national army or was it just a lot of warlords calling their militia, uh, the national army? Um, after 2001, it was only militias of different warlords who became the de facto army. But once uh, a government was formed, once more troops from different countries as part of the ISAF, they entered Afghanistan and they created all these facilities to teach people uh, basic you know, military 
academy, police academy, uh, where they would just gather around all the illiterate boys who smoke too much weed and don't have much uh, uh, to offer to their community. They would gather all those people and offer them a job. Like uh, there is a very funny story. There's a friend of mine. He uh, he went back to his village uh, a couple of years ago. And there were a lot of local young men, hooligans. They were causing a lot of nuisance in, in the village. They were harassing people. And sometimes they would even rob people. And the next time he traveled back to his village, uh, he uh, uh, met an elder in his village. And he says, where are all these young men? Where are all these uh, local uh, thugs? What happened? And he said, thanks to God. The army came and recruited. Now this, this, this village is entirely free of criminals. So uh, that's 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 how they recruited people. See, you have to understand Afghanistan. You know, I'm not glorifying it, and I'm not saying that it's wonderful because people have different uh, views and opinions about that. But Afghanistan is a very patriarchal traditional conservative society where honor and dignity, all these matters, basically the life of rural people evolve around these issues. So in most rural Afghanistan, if you become a mercenary, so if you get paid to wear a uniform and serve an army that is created by an invader, Uh people won't like you. People won't respect you. Of course they shouldn't. (laughs) Like it's very common in most places in the world. Yes. So 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 for that reason, people who did choose to become part of the armed forces or police, they were uh, not all because they were immoral or bad people. They were simply very poor. There there is no job opportunity. There is no employment. There is nothing that can actually give people some sort of uh, purpose of, of of waking up every morning. Because they can't earn anything. Many young men have to flee Afghanistan and work as migrant workers in in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, or flee all the way to Europe and become dishwashers and pizza uh, bakers, whatnot. Mm -hmm. But but that's the reality of Afghanistan. Many young men, they didn't have any choice. So they became police and army, but they were not motivated to serve their country and die for their uh, flag and all these stuff that you see in the media, all these uh, reports of how uh, people are very patriotic, all of that maybe apply to a very small community. But most people, they just needed a job to get paid so that they can feed their children, so that they can feed their families. And that's how they became part of the armed forces. And the armed forces were also like the civil service and the executive branch. They were all allocated to different leaders from different factions. So a a, a head of a garrison would become someone who is related to the governor in that particular region. Mm. Or uh, they created a military academy and they gave the name of the military academy to uh, Marshal Qasim. Uh, an illiterate war- warlord became uh, an illiterate warlord died, and then they named a military academy after him, and he was even given the title of marshal. Fahim, right? Yes, yes, Marshal Fahim. And his biggest uh, military uh, victory was that he was a gun for hire in two thousand one, when uh, the B fifty two bombers uh, basically. 
<laughs> got rid of the Taliban. That's how he became a military genius, uh, a hero. But it's so farcical that you have a military academy named after an illiterate man who doesn't have had any sort of military achievement. Uh, so what do you expect out of people who graduate from that institution or people who teach at that institution? Everybody was, uh, pardon my French, they were just taking a piss. Uh, and, and that's why it was so easy for the Taliban to defeat them because most of these men, they knew that, look, I'm just here because... I need to take care of my family. And if this government cannot even pay me because the Americans are packing their bags and they're uh, vacating Bagram Air Base, why do I have to die? Why do I have to shoot my fellow <laughs> villager? Just because he wears traditional clothes and he is carrying a white banner and I wear a, a, a uniform and I carry a different, you know, the government's flag why should we die? They they were very easily convinced by local elders and villages and said, listen, the Americans are leaving, government is collapsing, you're all both from the same community, there's your same people, why should you fight? So they were barely had any sort of exchange of fire in most part of the country in the 10 days that the Taliban uh, managed to uh, take over the country. It wasn't like the army are cowards and they were scared and cannot fight. That's just nonsense. They didn't want to fight. Why, why would anybody risk their life and get killed if they don't even get paid? Doesn't make sense. We also need to pay our fighters. So head over to historically.substack.com and subscribe to our newsletter and listen to previous episodes of our podcast. That's historically.substack.com. You can also catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, and YouTube. To learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov, by tuning in to our Late Nights with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically, rockfin.com forward slash historically, or search for us on YouTube. Uh, okay, so Hamid Karzai quote unquote served for a term and a half or two terms. Um, and then we got this guy, Ashraf Ghani. So can you talk a little bit about him and how he became, quote unquote, the president? Uh, Ashraf Ghani worked for the IMF. Uh, <laughs> he was, uh, <laughs> yes, so. He was a banker. Yes, he's a banker. And uh, although he has a PhD in anthropology, everybody calls him an economist, but uh uh, he wrote uh, famously a book, uh, How to Fix uh, Failed States. <laughs> and uh, I guess he's not the right person for that. <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, I, uh, I say he should now write a book uh, and he should title it How to F Failed States. <laughs> Uh, because that's basically what he has done in Afghanistan. He was uh, very good at presenting himself as an academic, as a scholar. He is not a typical leader in Afghanistan where uh, the leader is a tall man who uh, has a very, you know, manly features and walks uh, like a tough guy and has a very deep voice and big beard and big turban. In India, we call them takors, um, like the village heads, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so in Afghanistan, usually people who are leaders, they have this physical and uh, appearance of a leader. And people who are more like very scholarly, and etc., they're just 
not that uh, you know big guys. So he had this role as a Western educated uh, banker, a man of uh, the academia who came along with Hamid Karzai and all these others to Afghanistan to form a government where he was first a finance minister. He was the dean of uh, Kabul University. Uh, He had many significant roles in Afghanistan. And all the while, he was serving under uh, Hamid Karzai, but he was also cultivating his own cult of personality. So he would go to universities, he would lecture, and if you would notice a few uh, young uh, men and women who are very good at studying and they, they, they're very passionate about uh, going abroad and getting a Fulbright scholarship, etc., mm-hmm. he would try to cultivate a, a relationship with them. And he was sort of their mentor and he was their inspiration. Like, look at me, how successful I am. I, uh, I eventually became a banker. I worked for the IMF and now look at me. So a lot of people who be- wanted to be like him, they were also people who campaigned for him when he became a candidate for presidential elections in 2009. But at that time, his support base was very small and Karzai was still very successful because in the initial years of the uh, occupation, a lot of money flow, flew into Afghanistan. So a lot of people benefited from the, uh, you know, the revival of the economy, especially in uh, rural areas. And the insurgency was still in its formative stage, like after 2000, 2001, the Taliban were totally decimated. Uh, but they had to really uh, hide in the rural communities and develop in their own networks and grow uh, as an insurgency. So they didn't pose a existential threat to the state in the first decade of the occupation. Uh, and that's why Karzai seemed as the more popular leader and he won many votes. Uh, I think he's... Uh, uh, opponent, uh, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, was also very popular, uh, and there was a lot of corruption and fraud during that uh, election. Typical in every uh, elections in the last 20 years, there was a lot of, you know... Uh, Shady things. <laughs> like, yeah, they, they use like like millions of fake ballots, etc. <laughs> and there are even videos, everything. Uh, but that's how Karzai won the election. Uh, Ashraf Ghani only won a few votes. Uh, He wasn't really popular and he wasn't very famous. But then he was given different roles by Karzai. And what you have to know about the government in Afghanistan is that, yes, each warlord and each strongman would demand certain significant roles in the executive branch, in the civil service, or in the armed forces, or the police. But the United States Germany, France, the UK, uh, they would all also have a say in who gets which role. So they would go to Karzai and say, you need to give this job to Ashraf Ghani, or you need to give this job to so-and-so. Like uh, there was a man who was almost fired as a minister, uh, Rangin Datfar Espanta, who was a Maoist in the 1960s and 70s. 
And then he applied for asylum in Germany. And in 2001, he came back to Afghanistan. He was part of the Green Party in, in Germany. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was a very important uh, person in Afghanistan. He uh, was a minister. He, he played many significant roles. And once when Karzai tried to fire him, the German embassy called Karzai and said, you're not allowed to fire him. He needs to stay and do his job. So you see, it, that's the kind of government it, uh, they created. And so uh, Ashraf Ghani, when he failed to uh, win any votes in the presidential election in 2009, he was later given many significant roles. Like he was, uh, I don't exactly know what it, the, his role was, this, this title was, but he was going around the country and basically... Uh, he was the chief exec. Uh, never mind. According no, 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 no. He he was he was doing something with the armed forces. Ah. Like he's a he's an economist. He's a scholar, but he was doing something with the armed forces. So while that in during that uh, second period, uh, second era of uh, uh, Karzai, while Ashraf Ghani was serving under Karzai government, he traveled around the country and he realized that wearing a suit. And looking very funny uh, doesn't appeal to rural Afghanistan. So he changed his wardrobe. <laughs> he started wearing traditional clothes. And then he started growing a little beard. And then he started wearing a turban. So okay. he went through a transformation to uh, look more appealing to uh, rural Afghanistan, especially Pashtuns. Uh, and, and then he was basically building up his profile so that in 2014, he can again, participate in presidential elections. And he had the support and backing of United States. Um, okay, so now let's talk about his vice president. Amrullah Saleh. No, 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 no not, not that, that one, the one before him. Um, Abdul Rashid Dostum. Yes. So apparently he did a massacre where they found mass graves in his own personal fort or something like that in 2002. So yeah, what happened? So Abdul Rashid Dostum uh, was first a militia leader that was recruited by the communist regime in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And he had a history of being a very brutal man. Uh, he would be flown all around the country by the communist regime to uh, subdue insurgency. But later, after the civil war and after US occupation, uh, they, they knew that this man is a brutal uh, uh, savage. He can just go and kill a lot of people. So they gave him a very prominent role in the government and he, he, he became a very significant figure who was always uh, seen as the leader of the Uzbek minority in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, is that the Uzbeks in Afghanistan are a very diverse group. Yes, they are not one of the biggest communities in Afghanistan, but they are a very diverse group. There are uh, religious conservatives, there are secularists, there are uh, ethno-nationalists, there are uh, liberal progressives, all sorts of people exist among Uzbeks. So a illiterate warlord he, who's very known for his alcohol addiction and uh, uh, obsession with, with torturing and killing people, he cannot represent, he cannot represent a whole ethnic group. That's an insult for that ethnic group. Absolutely. So for that reason, you know, it was also a very evil aspect of the occupation that the United States and their allies, they would use these brutes 
as representatives of different ethnic groups uh, to create a co- co- inclusive government. <laughs> but but that's that's not inclusion when you have these evil people representing warlords. <laughs> yes. So so for that reason, when Ashraf Ghani wanted to become president, he was not a man who had any experience fighting. Uh-huh. He did not have his own political party. He is not from a uh, group of people who... Did he even live in Afghanistan? No. Okay. No, he, 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 uh, after he graduated from school, he got a scholarship. He went to uh, American University in Beirut, where he met his wife. Then he moved on to the United States. And he lived basically most of his life outside Afghanistan. And... Yes, he was involved in Afghanistan and he uh, uh, had some sort of involvement, but he didn't actually live in Afghanistan. And like, for instance, his children don't even speak any of our local languages. Oh, yeah. Uh, and his daughter is here in Brooklyn. Apparently, like, uh, she's like wants to be a musician or something. <laughs> no, no, no. She uh, uh, she uh, makes these uh uh, indie uh, movies, documentaries. Ah, cl- okay, okay. Cl- cl- close enough, okay. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and his son works for the crisis group. Uh, he is a, uh, uh, a, con- a consultant, chief consultant uh, on, in economy and whatnot. But what's important is that Ashraf Ghani, unlike Hamid Karzai, did not have like a very strong tribal uh, status, uh, uh, a, a some sort of support within a community so he needed these warlords and thugs to be part of his group so that when he uh, participates in the presidential election there is a large group of people who support him and they can campaign for him so Mm -hmm. that he gets more votes and so that he has some sort of legitimacy in the eyes of the international community. Because the international community, they say, okay, how many brute savages support you? <laughs> Five? Oh, then you must be uh, you must be somebody, you must be something. So 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 that's how it works. But uh, like for instance, Ashraf Ghani tried to present himself as a uh, Pashtun uh, from the Ahmadzai tribe. And he uh, lobbied the Ahmadzai tribe, which has 11, uh, uh, 13 branches. It, it's one of the biggest tribes in Afghanistan. Uh, he basically told them that if you all campaign for me and support me, we will have for the first time in Afghanistan an elected Ahmadzai president. So uh, I'm from the same tribe and many uh, uh, tribal leaders from my community, they supported him because they said he's one of us. <laughs> but but he he never actually did, did anything for them. Like, like they were cheated by him twice during two elections. He made them campaign for him. And then when he became president, he gave them nothing. <laughs> so that that's how he basically created his his camp with Rashid Dostum, uh, mm-hmm. because Rashid Dostum, you know, he massacred so many people. Uh, he uh, uh, drove, he, uh, um, what, what is not being discussed is Dostum actually carried out ethnic cleansing against Pashtun uh, villages in northern Afghanistan. Wow. Because, uh, they, they, his men went uh, to different uh, small Pashtun village, villages in northern Afghanistan and they basically uh, took their animals, killed their men. Oh, my Lord. They uh, uh, raped their women. 
and they forced them to flee. They forced them to leave those areas. Mm -hmm. uh, they drove them out of those areas. And there was a woman in the Afghan Senate, uh, Farida Kuche, who was interviewed by Pajwak, and she tells her story. And she uh, says that Dostum's men did, it, did this to her. But Ashraf Ghani, who on the one hand wanted to present himself as a Pashtun nationalist, an ethno-nationalist, he allied himself with a man who carried ethnic cleansing against Pashtuns in the north. Mm -hmm. So it was all about how much support can I get so that I can be accepted as a real political leader, mm -hmm. not just in Afghanistan, but also in the eyes of international community. And that's why uh, an illiterate warlord I like Dostum became his vice president, which was really funny because Ashraf Ghani has a condition. He has a uh, problem with his intestines uh, and people often make fun of that, but uh, he, he's physically very weak and he could die. And people said, if this man, this, this guy who has a PhD and he's a banker and he wrote a, a bestseller, if he <laughs> dies, our next president is going to be an illiterate warlord who is a rapist and an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, and, and that was a serious possibility during uh, uh, Rani's presidency, his first term. Uh, but yeah, so that that was all about creating like a camp where you have all these powerful people around you. It's not so much about actually being capable of delivering services to the people, implementing uh, a uh, agenda, policies, nothing of that sort. And okay, so. And I mean, that's why he probably ran away at the first sight of trouble. Now, suppose that there are people out there who really care about Afghanistan. Like, what needs to happen in order for Afghanistan to turn around and work for its people again, I guess? Uh, you see, Afghanistan is not shaped as a nation state because it never had a functioning central government that can implement policies, such as even uh, standardizing language, standardizing spelling. Those things have not been actually implemented. We don't have a bureaucracy. We don't have uh, enough people who are educated. So we are still a pre-modern society. Like if you could compare that to uh, like, Afghanistan is what the, the the from which area of the United States are you? I'm in New York. Okay, so let's say uh, Afghanistan is like uh, New Mexico in mid 19th century. Okay. Okay. So so uh, that's what Afghanistan is currently like, and it doesn't mean that we are ignorant savages and we, we're we're not. Uh, same as other human beings, but we didn't go through many historic processes, the stages of development, uh, which is why Afghanistan has many problems, such as illiteracy. Uh, and, and, and in order to improve the lives of people in Afghanistan, the first and foremost thing that needs to happen is to provide security. If people feel safe, if they if they can live their life in in their own village, or their own city or town, without fearing of being uh, kidnapped 
or without uh, having to pay bribes to every uh, uh, person who works for the government. Uh, if, if people have that sense of security, they can then focus on uh, how to improve their own economy, how to mm-hmm. improve their own livelihood. Once they can improve their own livelihood, they can also send their children to school. And if they, their children become educated, you see, I am an urban Afghan. My Both of my parents are from Kabul. Uh, I am a very typical urban Afghan, even though my fa- father's family is from a village outside the city. Uh, so I have some connections with rural Afghanistan, but I'm essentially an urban guy. But we are not better human beings than rural Afghanistan. The majority of people live in rural Afghanistan. And it doesn't matter how good people live, uh, how good the life of people is in Kabul. It, it doesn't matter if they have Starbucks and uh, all these uh, shisha lounges and whatnot in Kabul. That doesn't matter. Just five kilometers outside the city, people don't have electricity. They don't have water. They don't have even aspirins. And 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 if 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 that kind of injustice and equality remains, you will have reason for uh, insurgency. You will have reasons for people to uh, take up arms and and try to get what they want by force. And and that's why Afghanistan needs to have peace and security. That's the most important thing. If, if, if people don't have to fear for their life every day of either being droned or kidnapped or uh, extorted or whatever, then mm-hmm. they can focus on their own economy and, and education. And once they, they uh, have some sort of economic development and education, then we will see advancement in social and other uh, matters as well. But as long as people have to always fear for their life, as long as they always have to fear for armed groups and invasion and and, and corrupt governments installed by uh, either it's Soviet Union, Russia or uh, United States, as long as that remains the problem, people of Afghanistan will not have peace. They will not be able to prosper. So my, my issue is I want, uh, to say I, I want people around the world to just leave Afghans alone. Okay? <laughs> leave <Yeah>. Britney alone. <laughs> yep. Okay. That sounds absolutely fair. Um, and it's like the US always tries to find excuses like, oh, like like it's like because it's profit. War is good for business. Um, now, um, before we head out, can you tell everyone, I love your show. I've been trying to binge on a little bit. Like, uh, there's a lot of material. So I, I started, I watched the one about the um, the Tajik warlords. So how can people find you? Um, and when do you broadcast? So we have a podcast every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a full-time job. Uh, so whenever I'm able to, I can produce a podcast every week uh, on uh, Afghan Eye. Uh, basically, the Afghan Eye is on all streaming services. We are also on YouTube. If you look for the, the Afghan Eye, you will find us on all streaming services, on all social media. Uh, we write articles and we have done a uh, marathon of live streams during the first few days of the collapse of the regime. However, we won't do that many live streams now, but we will try to do at least one or two live streams every week uh, on YouTube. 
And uh, basically, all you need to know is the Afghan eye, and then you will find us. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming. And uh, we really appreciate this. This was very, very informative. And it's very, um, especially, for example, like I keep seeing just Western media saying like the silliest, like the dumbest, not, I mean, just factually incorrect things. Like they can't even manage to figure out sometimes whether they're in Pakistan or not, or like they can't even manage sometimes to get the country right. So it's really important to have somebody who can at least lead people to the basics, like to, as to like what to even imagine, because yeah, there's like so much misinformation on West. Like it's, I, I just don't, I've never, like it is a lot of misinformation. <laughs> I'll have to say. True. And, and, and the great thing is that, you know, uh, 20 years ago we couldn't do this, but now uh, we ha- at least have the ability to, to, have a, our own voices and that's why we're trying to utilize all the access that we have to social media creating our own platforms etc and it's absolutely necessary because obviously we don't have the billions of dollars that the mainstream media has but we have the motivation and you have the like truth like sometimes i just get horrified at like there was a us ambassador who's like america always supports edu- women's education and i'm like Wait a minute. There's a clip of Ronald Reagan uh, supporting these psychotic um, warlords. And there's one with, um, what's his name? Brzezinski with Golbuddin Hekmatyar who threw acid in people's faces. So what are, like, the, the newswoman did not even, like, ask since when is what I would have asked if an M- U.S. ambassador said, oh, America always supports the education of women. I was like, since when? Is, and, and they can't even do the basics like that. So it's very frustrating. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's very frustrating, but at the same time, uh, it also motivates people like me to, you know, basically uh, w- w- our tagline is the counter narrative. So there is the dominant narrative, and we have to provide a counter narrative uh, by telling our story from our perspective, and that's why we called our platform the Afghan Eye because it's our perspective. Okay, well. Thank you so much for coming. Good night. Uh, It's always a pleasure. And uh, until next time, have a good day. Bye. You too. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.